We're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 this morning. Those of you who, who know me well are, are probably wondering about the title of the sermon, a wardrobe prayer, and the image behind me of a wardrobe. And, and you're probably surprised because you know, if you know me well, that I am a J.R.R. Tolkien guy and not a C.S. Lewis guy, but I just couldn't make the title The Shire's Prayer or The Helm's Deep Prayer work. So um, I went with J.R.R. Tolkien's good friend, C.S. Lewis. So that's why um, we're using that this morning. But uh, hopefully the image is clear. What we have in this particular prayer is Paul praying to the Father for our experiential entrance into another world where we actually need this prayer and this prayer is the means by which God leads us into a deeper experience of of the Father's love of Christ's love. So that's, that's what we have before us this morning. If you, if you were to walk into my, my study at home, you would see a, a number of shelves that are filled with works from dead guys. So you, you would see 12 volumes of Thomas Goodwin. You would see 12 volumes of Thomas Watson. You would see the volumes of Richard Sibbs. You would see, and, and the reason why I, I have their works on my shelves is because I, even though they're dead, is because I consider them soul doctors. So each of them have a God-given ability to diagnose the Christian's heart and then prescribe a treatment that will deal with the particular need of the Christian's heart. And, and what's, what's, what's beautiful about what these men write is that they understand that even though Christians might not articulate it like this, they understand that Christians walk around all day often unconvinced that the Father actually loves them. And by that I mean they're not feeling the Father's love. They're not feeling Christ's love. They would say, yes, indeed, the Father loves me. Yes, indeed, Christ loves me. But when it comes to my daily experience, whether in my interactions with my family, the husband with the wife, the wife with the husband, the, the, the parents with the children, or even within your vocational domain, it's hard to be convinced that the Father loves me, that Christ loves me in a way that makes a meaningful difference in how I interact with all of those people within my day-to-day relationships. One of the soul doctors is Richard Sibbs. And listen to this paragraph, and I'm gonna point out a couple things as I read it. He says, Christ must descend in his love to us if we are to ascend to him in our affections. So you hear that? Christ must descend in his love to us 
if our affections are to ascend, to rise to him. Because, here's the answer, here's why. Because our nature is such that we cannot love, but where we know ourselves to be loved first. Therefore, God is indulgent, and by that he means he gives freely. God is indulgent to us herein. And in order that we may love him, he manifests his love first to us. Because naturally ourselves, being conscious of guilt, are full of fears from thence. So that if the soul be not persuaded first of Christ's love, it runs away from him, as Adam did from God, and as Peter did from Christ, when he said, depart from me, for I am but a sinful man, Luke 5, 8. So the soul of every man would say, if first it were not persuaded of God's love in Christ. Therefore, here's the prescription, Therefore, prevent that disposition of soul which would rise out of the sense of guilt and unworthiness. God first speaks to us in Christ, at length saying unto our souls, I am thy salvation, whereupon the soul, first finding its love, there loves him back again, of whom it finds itself so much beloved so that our love is but a reflection of his. I am my beloved's, beloved's because my beloved is mine. Now someone might, upon hearing me read that quotation, think, is that really the way it works biblically? I mean, that, that, that sounds nice, but as far as the, the Christian's daily experience, is that really the way it, it, it works biblically? And Paul's answer in his second prayer in Ephesians is an emphatic yes. Of, of, you think of, think, of, think of this. Of all the things Paul could have prayed in this prayer, of all the things he could have prayed, he prayed this. Why did he pray this? What's significant about praying this? And he prays this before he begins that section of Ephesians that discusses what the Christian has to do. Before he says anything about what is required of the Christian, He prays this wardrobe prayer about knowing and comprehending God's love. So let's read Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. The the prayer proper is verses 14 to 19. And then you have a doxology in verses 20 and 21, which I'm including because it naturally follows from the prayer. So Paul prays the prayer And then because of what he just prayed, he immediately breaks into this doxology. So we're using it to help our understanding of what Paul is doing in this particular prayer. And then after I read it, we're gonna look at the what of the prayer, the who of the prayer, and the how of the prayer. The the third heading, the how of the prayer, 
will be about two minutes. The first two are longer than two minutes. So I, I don't want you to think as I'm halfway through the second heading, this, this is really gonna cut into almost all of the elective hour. It's not gonna happen. So he says. Verse 14. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Then he gives three requests. So he has three requests in this prayer. Number one, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being with this result so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Request number two, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then the third final request, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So let's look at the what of the prayer, the what of the prayer. Look at the opening words of verse 14. For this reason, for this reason. Now what's interesting about that particular phrase is he's picking up for where he left off in, in verse one of chapter three. So in other words, if you look at verse one, he says, for this reason. The only two times in the epistle where he uses that phrase. Verse one says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then if you, if you note that there's an M dash, at least in my version of the ESV, there's an M dash there. And what the translators are indicating to you with that M dash is that now there's a parenthetical aside where Paul is digressing from the opening thought of chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he digresses. So what we're doing here when Paul says in verse 14, for this reason, he's telling us that he's picking back up on verse one. So what we need to do is if you put 3.1 and 3.14 together, here's what you have. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then you have the remainder of the prayer. So 3.2 through 13 is a digression. It, it's, it's not less important than what Paul is saying, but it's of different importance. So Paul's prayer, think of it this way. Paul's prayer is taking us from the heights of what he talks about in chapters one and two to the boots on the ground of how the Christian is to live in a way that's worthy or commensurate of the gospel itself. So he's in the heights of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, 
and what Christ himself has done through his living, through his dying, through his being raised to the Father's right hand, raised from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand. He's moving us from the heights to the boots on the ground and in order to move us from the heights to the boots on the ground so that we're living in accordance with what he's just discussed in those opening two chapters, he has to pray. He's praying because what he's talked about up here is so wonderful and marvelous that it's actually impossible for us to incorporate into our thinking and our feeling as we relate to one another in in the day-to-day of life. So this prayer is connecting us with chapter four, verse one, to walk in manner, in a manner worthy, commensurate with the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Then he goes on and on, and that can only happen by deepening our comprehension and knowledge, experientially, of this too good to be true reality of the love of Christ for us. So Paul is praying that through faith, we would pass from the realm of what we can see and touch and feel through the wardrobe of prayer into the Narnia of God's incomprehensible love for us in Christ. That's what's going on. So when we don't walk this way, here's what Paul's prayer is telling us. When we don't walk this way, our, our failure is one to live experientially within the love of Christ. When we don't put away falsehood and speak the truth with our neighbors, chapter four, verse 25, our failure is to live in the experiential reality of Christ's love for us. When we are sinfully angry, our failure is to live in the experiential experiential reality of Christ's love for us. When we give opportunity to the devil, verse 27, our failure is to live in the experiential reality of Christ's love for us. When we let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, verse 29, our failure is to live in the experiential love of Christ for us. When we are not kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, verse 32, our failure is to live within the experiential reality of Christ's love for us. When husbands don't love their wives as they should, chapter five, verse 25, when wives do not submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, chapter five, verse 22, our failure is to live in the experiential reality of Christ's love for us. When there is unresolved, ongoing conflict between parents and children in the home, chapter six, verses one to four, our failure is to live in the experiential reality of Christ's love for us. This relationship between the way we live and our experience of Christ's love for us should shine a bright 
hope into all of our relational struggles. So whatever your relational struggles are, where you are not living commensurate with the good news of the gospel, there is an answer to that problem. And Paul addresses it by praying. Here's what I love about inspired prayers. You know that all inspired prayers reveal the very heart of God for you. In other words, this is a prayer God's going to answer just as it's prayed. Each one of those requests, this is what he's going to do, no doubt. So Paul's prayer is a necessary response to everything he's written in chapters one and two. So chapter one, verse three opens up, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And all of this was to the praise of his glorious grace, which he favored us in the beloved, in Christ. If you want to look back to verses 7 to 10 in chapter 1, notice what Paul says there. In him we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In other words, this wasn't a whim. This wasn't a hurry, put together a plan, plan. He lavished this upon us in all of his wisdom and in all of his insight. Making, verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite or sum up all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven, and when you see that, things in heaven, think the heavenly places, which he speaks of numerous times in his letter to the Ephesians. Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Chapter two, we are seated with him in the heavenly places to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's a coming together of the heavenly places and everything in that realm and everything on earth into one being summed up in Christ so that you have these words in Revelation 21, 22. John says, and I saw no temple in the city when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, out of heaven, from God to earth. John says, I, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's the summing up of all things in Christ. What Paul talks about there, if you could take uh, verses three 
through that lengthy section and turn it this way, what you would find is verse 10 is at the very center of it. It's the, it's, it's, it's the Mount Everest of that lengthy paragraph. That God's intention, his purpose, in all of his wisdom and insight, and his grace and his mercy and his love is to bring all things together, things in heaven and things on earth, summed up into the one person of Christ so that there is no temple except Christ and the Father are the temple. The word temple is is not used in this prayer, but the, the temple language is. Let me show you this. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell there is a compound verb. And part of that verb is the word for house. King David often uses the word house to refer to God's temple. Ephesians 1.10, as a plan Plan there has the word house in it, household management for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is chapter two. Aliens there has the word house in it and the other part of the word is outside the house. Gentiles were once outside the house, outside the temple. Fellow, you were, uh, and fellow Citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built, the building of the house on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, the house's structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, a house for God by the Spirit. And then you get to Ephesians 3.18, where Paul says that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth depth. You know what language Paul is using there? If you look at the instructions that God gave to Moses in Exodus 25 to 27, guess what terms he uses? If you look at the instructions given in 1 Kings chapter 5 through 7 with regard to the temple, you know what words are used? Breadth, length, height, depth. Paul's using language here that is helping us visualize that the entirety of the renewed heavens and the the new earth, when all of that is brought together in the one person of Christ, what you have there is the creation which is the very temple of God. Of such breadth and height and length and depth that there is no end. The third request, second half of verse 19, 
Paul says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's our destiny. My wife and I went uh, to Alaska last May, and first time there, and that was a very underwhelming trip. He lies. Everywhere I looked, I was filled. <laughs> Take a picture of that. I just look over. <gasps> Take a picture of that. Everywhere I looked was all in wonder because you were surrounded by gorgeous beauty. And Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God as the temple. And when that happens, no matter where you think, where you look, where you think, where you open your eyes, whether you open your eyes or close your eyes, all you will know is awe and wonder. Because all things in heaven and all things on earth will have been summed up in Christ himself. Paul's, Paul's message in this particular prayer is, is, is not just that we pray it, but he's, he's letting us know that it really is the Father's good pleasure to give you his house with him in it. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And better than that, Paul says, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the universe, which is his very temple and the temple of the Lamb. One scholar puts it like this. It looks as though God intends to flood the universe with himself. As though the universe, the entire cosmos, was designed as a receptacle of his love. It is designed to be filled flooded, drenched in God. That's the prayer. So you can, you can easily hear that. So we're, we're talking about things that are beyond our what? Comprehension and knowledge. Our imagination, our ability to picture what we're considering here is far beyond our ability so you can easily hear someone say, man, that, I hear what you're saying, but that sounds too good to be true. I mean, how do I even begin to wrap the arms of my heart and mind around these things? I mean, it's, it's, it's all well and good while I'm sitting here in this room on a Sunday morning. But when I, I leave here, I go headlong into a challenging marriage. Or I go headlong into an extremely challenging parenting struggle. 
I do, do not know what to do. Or I go into a job that's just filled with a toxic culture of conflict. I mean, this is good, this is good to hear about in this room, but how in the world does it meet me when I'm in the midst of ongoing struggle? And that's just another way of saying, this is just too good to be true. It's good for Sundays. Amen. I get it. Let's sing about it. But on Monday, it doesn't seem to cut it. Which is why Paul prays in verses 16 and 18 these words. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be what? Strengthened with power, through his spirit, in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have what? Strength. To do what? Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and you need strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So if you feel like this is too far beyond me, I do not have the strength to see this fleshed out in my Monday to Saturday. Paul says, I know. This is why you have this prayer. I am praying that the Father who inspired me to lay down these words in print, that that Father will give you strength to comprehend that which is incomprehensible, to know that which surpasses knowledge. That's the what of this prayer. Let's look at the who of this prayer. And the who is our Almighty Father and our naming Father. Let's look at our Almighty Father. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I'm going to translate being there as in your inner humanity. It's the word for humanity. And because of what he says in chapter two, when he says what Christ did in his own body was to create in himself one new humanity. Taking the two, the Jew and Gentile, and making them one and creating in himself one new humanity. And so what Paul is praying here is that we would be strengthened through his spirit in our inner humanity, this new humanity that has been created for us in the very person and work of of Christ. Now what I wanna do is swap the halves of that verse, verse 16, swap the halves to help our understanding. So here's what it says. He prays that the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner humanity according to the riches of his glory. So the strength 
is in accord with the riches of his glory. So the question is, what does Paul mean by the riches of the Father's glory? Because that's whose glory he's talking about here. What does he mean by the riches of the Father's glory? Well, back in Paul's first prayer, Ephesians 1, 15 to 17, he, he, he writes this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he adds, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, the Father of glory. So what's the significance of this phrase, the Father of glory or the riches of his glory? I was really helped by Romans 6.4 where Paul writes, we are buried therefore with him, with Christ, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. So Paul connects the glory of the Father as what the Father used to raise Jesus from the dead. So, so then the question is, is there anything in Ephesians that would connect the Father's glory with the resurrection of Jesus? And if there is, I'm arguing that that's the connection. Back in his first prayer again, verse 17, chapter one, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him that you may know, and then he gives three what's of what he wants us to know. That the Father of glory may give us to know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's number one. Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. What is the glory of God? David tells us, well, if you look at the sun in the daytime, the sun is the work of God's hands, and it is his glory. You go out at night, and you see the stars and the moon. David says, looking at the stars and the moon, you are seeing the work of God's hands. You are seeing the very glory of God with your eyes. And here is Paul saying in Ephesians that the glory of God, the Father's glory, is the power by which he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. And later in chapter 2, 
he says that he made us alive in Christ, he raised us from the dead, and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That is the power of God at work, and that power is greater than the power it took to create the entirety of the universe. As spectacular as it is to see the Hubble scope images and descriptions of what you find in those images, we can see, get a sense of the immense power of God to create all that is, and yet that's not the focus of Paul upon the Father's power in Ephesians. The focus of his power in Ephesians is something far greater that far surpasses, that goes way out and beyond the power of God to create all that is, and that is the power of God to raise Christ from the dead victorious and to raise him and seat him in the heavenly places, and not just that, but to make us alive in Christ and to raise us from the dead and to seat us with Christ in the heavenly power, in the heavenly places. There is no power greater than that power. And it is one that is far beyond our ability to comprehend. So how should we think of the timing of this power? So we've all heard stories of someone who uh, saw a car accident, car's turned over, someone's stuck in 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 the car, can't get out, car's gonna blow, and someone comes up and the adrenaline's coursing through their, their body, and what do they do? They suddenly, given the circumstances, have the power to lift the car or to rip the car door off. Is, is that what Paul means when he says, look at, verse, look at verse 20. This is the doxology. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Is, is that the kind of image? That God has the power and he, uh, he, he unleashes the power given the right circumstance. Or does he mean something better than that, timing? Because it's, it's not all that encouraging to me to know that God has the power and he's able to do this, but it has to be given the right circumstances. Notice what he says right after that in verse 20. According to what? To the power that is at work, present tense, within us. The power of God at work is like the power of Niagara. Is the power of Niagara always at work? Yes, it never ceases. Even when you're sleeping, the the power of Niagara is is fully engaged. Does the power of the sun have to wait for the right circumstances for it to exercise its power? No, even when you are sleeping, the sun is fully exercising its power. So when when Paul is highlighting the God who will strengthen you according to the riches of his 
of his glory with this power. He says, this is according to the power that is always continually at work within us. And here he has in mind the church. Individually, we feel weak. But that's why we gather. We gather together because it's in the church where the Father is actively engaged in strengthening his people where the prayer is answered. Now, of course, there are, it, it, it does relate to me personally as God works his power within me through the scriptures as I meditate, as I think, as I pray on the scriptures. Yes, that happens, but the main point, the main point here is that where the Father answers that prayer is when the saints gather together and he is at work to strengthen us so that we can comprehend and so that we can know the love of Christ. So that's our almighty father. And let's look briefly at our naming father. It takes us back to verse 14 of chapter three. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every, and I'm, I'm gonna give you a better translation of that word every, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And I think that's the better translation because back in chapter two, verse 21, he says, in whom in Christ, the whole structure, same grammatical construction. He's not saying the whole, every part of the structure or every structure. He says the whole structure. So I think in the context and flow of thought here, he's not thinking of every, he's thinking of the whole family. Those who are already in the heavenly places because they died in Christ, and those who are within the church right now on earth. The whole family has been named by the Father. Chapter two describes the Ephesians before their conversion and it describes them as alienated, outside the house, strangers, having no hope in the world. And although that was true of them then, now the Father has named them. Isaiah 62, verses two to four, help us get at the heart of what it means for the Father to name us. The context is God's people have been returning from exile. Some have, some haven't. And even the return from exile is extremely difficult. And so even though many of them have returned from Babylonian exile, they still feel like they are forsaken. And notice what Isaiah 62, 2-4 says. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called or named by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord 
and a royal diadem in the hand of our God, you shall no more be named forsaken. And your name shall no more be termed or named desolate. But you shall be named, listen to this, my, here's the name, my delight is in her. And your land married. For, here's the reason why he names names them this. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. Ephesians 6.1 says that God has favored us in the beloved. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, God himself, Father, Son, has named us two things. He has named us sons and he has named us the bride of Christ. And the name that we carry with us in this world, even in the midst of all our relational trials, is this. This is why we gather. My delight is in you. My delight is in you. For I delight in you. That's the who. Two minutes on the how of the prayer. How does the Father answer this prayer? How does he? Because he does answer it. He always answers this prayer. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may experientially dwell in your hearts, and here are the two words, through what? Faith. The Father answers this prayer through faith. And in the context of Ephesians, when you get to chapter 4, it is the faith that comes through the preached word, through the gifts that the Father, that Christ has given to the church. That Christ has given gifts to the church And those gifts proclaim the good word come to us from the Father about all that he's done in Christ. And it is through faith in hearing that word that God works within us to deepen in our comprehension of the incomprehensible, in our knowledge, in that which surpasses knowledge. Back to Richard Sibbs. He writes, We must warm our souls with the consideration of the love of God in him to us. This will stir up our faith to him back again. For we are, listen to this, then we're done. For we are more safe in that he is ours than that we give ourselves to him. We are more safe in his comprehending of us 
than in our clasping and holding of Him. Let's pray. So Father, our prayer this morning is very simple. Would you give us the strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, to depth, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And we pray that you would freely answer this request for us, the people whom you have named, your delight, your children. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.